0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Harry Enten, a senior writer and analyst at CNN and the network's political data guru. Prior to joining CNN, he covered politics for 538. I wanted to have him on the program to discuss next week's California primary, which may end up determining control of the House of Representatives, as well as a bunch of other election-related topics. Harry Enten joins me now from CNN in New York City. Harry, thank you for being here.
1: Shalom. Thanks for having me.
0: My dad's name is Harry, so I, I have a good feeling about this podcast.
1: I have a great feeling just because we have so many mutual things in common.
0: Uh, well, let's not go down that path right away, but uh, let's, let's stick to politics before we get to that. But tell me, why is the primary in California on Tuesday uh, so important, do you think?
1: Well, I think it's important for a number of reasons. For those who are not familiar with how California elects its elected officials, essentially you have what is called a top two primary. That is, all of the candidates, regardless of their party affiliation, will run next Tuesday, and the two top vote-getters in each congressional district will advance to the general election in November. That means that in a number of districts, there could be two Democrats advancing or two Republicans advancing. And because A lot of Democrats believe that their path to a majority runs through California. There are a number of cases where there are Republican incumbents or seats that are held by Republicans where Democrats at this point look like they could get locked out. That is, there'll be two Republicans advancing to the general election in November.
0: How many seats are there where that's a real possibility?
1: There are a number. I would count essentially uh, three. Uh, there's Ed Royce's district. There's Dana Rohrabacher's district. There's Daryl Ice's district. And those are three seats where I think that there are a lot of Democrats are very, very worried about what's going on. Now, there are some additional seats, but those, I think, are the three that most people are really, really focusing on. But we're going to have to wait and see. There's not a lot of reliable polling that you're going to get if a congressional district primary, even in a great state like California.
0: And so all three of these states are states where if a Democrat made the final two, excuse me, all three of these districts are districts where if a Democrat made the final runoff, they would either be favored or kind of even odds um, against the Republican because because of the conditions this year. Is that your sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, given the presidential vote in these districts, you know, these are districts that Hillary Clinton did quite well out, especially compared to a normal uh, Democrat, per se, or let's say in a year in which Donald Trump wasn't the Republican nominee in 2016. So they would at least have a good shot at picking up those seats. But of course, if they don't advance to the general election, then their chance is no shot. There are no write-ins. There are no do-overs. It's whoever advances, the two candidates who advance, those are the two who face off in the general election in November.
0: So how did it get to this position with with Democrats where they haven't been able to find sort of a candidate to be the sort of well be the nominee or be be kind of the standard bearer for the party in the district do you, is do you think that this would be common if we had this situation where you have the top two vote getters in more states or is it was there a spe- specific screw up by the party what 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 led to this.
1: Well, I would say, obviously, you know, there are only a few states where you have a system that's even remotely similar to this. Washington state is one. And then, obviously, in Louisiana, you have a slightly different thing called the jungle primary. But for the intents and purposes of this, it's basically the same thing. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in more states. Uh, But we just don't have that many cycles to really go off of. Right. Uh, But in terms of how we got to this situation, I think it's a number of things. Number one, it's the fact that you're dealing with a lot of Democratic enthusiasm, right? That is a lot of people want to run. A lot of people want to get involved. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, I think on both sides, although in this particular case, on the Democratic side, it's especially coming back to bite, is you don't have as strong of a party as you may have had, say, 20 or 30 years ago that could have directed and say, this candidate has to get out, this candidate has to get out. So we focus in on this candidate. Now, we have seen some instances of that where Some candidates were forced out when they were showed the polling and say, hey, you're just going to be a spoiler. But the fact that we haven't seen more of that, I think, is an indication that the major party structure that we're used to being strong in this country isn't exactly strong as you might expect right now.
0: There have been some states and places around the country where... Democrats have the Democratic National Committee in Washington has tried to put pressure on certain candidates to drop out or try to do ads for their favored candidate or something like that, kind of to to get it so the party, the national party has what they consider to be a clean shot at the Republican incumbent or, you know, whoever the Republican is. Broadly speaking, do you feel that that's been any different than in previous elections, that there have been more, more fights uh, between the party and between specific candidates, or, or does this kind of happen every, every two years?
1: Uh, well, I mean, look, parties intervening in primaries is nothing new. I, I think perhaps the only thing that is new, especially in our social media age and the upcoming progressive wing of the Democratic Party that's gotten a little bit stronger, as illustrated by the Bernie Sanders surge in 2016, is perhaps there's a little bit more of a whiplash to it, a little bit more of a backlash. But in terms of parties getting involved in primaries, no, there's nothing new about that. That's what parties do. That's why you have parties. And anyone who would argue otherwise is being rather foolish.
0: So, people like yourself, and by that I mean pollsters and uh, people who are obsessed with polling, have kind of been talking about control of the House of Representatives in terms, or, or they, they've used the metric of essentially that the the national margin for the House of Representatives—that's the combined vote from all 435 districts—needs to be, and you know, different different people like yourself have different estimates, but around six or seven points nationally to probably take the house which i believe is to win 23 seats is that right
1: a net gain of 23 a
0: net gain of 23 how do you come up with that number whether it's six or seven for people who don't understand that including including people like myself how do you come up with that number of six or seven percent nationally and how certain and accurate do you think it is
1: well, I'll answer your second question first, and that is that there is a wide margin of error around that estimate. So it shouldn't shock anyone if Democrats, say, win by five and then take control of the House, or it shouldn't shock anyone if Democrats win by eight or nine and then they don't take control of the House. Uh, the way that we come up with that estimate, there are a number of different ways, but essentially what we're doing is we're building a model uh, that takes into account the past congressional vote in that district, the past presidential vote in that district, whether or not an incumbent is running, and then perhaps some additional 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 variables and basically say, okay, if we play out the election any number of times based upon those different district factors and then how much of a national swing we're expecting and simulate that out, this is the number that most frequently results as the tipping point whereby control goes from Republicans to the Democrats. And I think that that's an important thing to note, is that there are many more districts, nationally speaking, that lean Republican, at least on the presidential level, um, so that even though Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, say, in 2016, Donald Trump won the majority of congressional districts, and that's part of the reason why we expect that Democrats are going to need to win the popular vote by a significant margin in order to take control of the House.
0: So it seems like from what you're saying, I mean, gerrymandering is often given as a reason why Democrats don't do as well in the House as perhaps they should. But it, it seems like his bigger reason is just the simple fact of that, you know, liberal people tend to congregate in, um, let's say, urban areas. and. So you have a situation where even if there wasn't gerrymandering, you would have a a problem to have Democrats if they were getting kind of half the vote, let's say, nationally to get half the congressional districts.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's 100 percent true. Now, that's not to say gerrymandering is not a big deal or doesn't play a factor in this. It most certainly does. If there wasn't gerrymandering. Democrats would be in a better position to take back the House. But because Democrats do congregate more in urban areas, that makes it more difficult. It should also be noted that because Republicans have more incumbents than Democrats running, incumbents tend to outrun the national environment. And so even in 2010, for instance, you might have thought that Democrats might have been able to hold on to the House when they had a majority, even if they had lost the popular vote by, say, a point or two, given that there were more Democratic incumbents running than Republicans.
0: Which is the reason that Republicans in Washington have been so worried about all the the wave of retirements that's uh, come across their party in the la- or swept over their party, whatever the whatever the metaphor is, in the last uh, six months or so.
1: Absolutely, 100 percent. I mean, there is some question about how strong the incumbent effect is in wave years and whether or not it's becoming weaker as, say, we become more polarized. But there's no doubt that incumbents on average get a higher percentage of the vote controlling for all other factors than challengers or those in open seats do.
0: There's one thing that I think Democrats have been excited about and one thing that Republicans have been excited about over the last couple months. And I just want to ask you one at a time what you think of them. The thing that a lot of Democrats have been saying is essentially that what we see in these special elections, which have been going on since last year, and I think there was most recently was the district in in Arizona where um, the Democrat did much, much, much better than expected, that essentially what, what we see on the ground and in these election results is different from – perhaps what we're seeing in the polls, even though, broadly speaking, the polls have been not great for Trump and good for um, voters saying they want to elect a Democratic Congress. But that essentially that, you know, what's being picked up in these special elections is a real sign of a wave election. So what do you make of the special election results? And does it make you think that perhaps in some way, the polls showing Democrats only ahead six or seven points nationally are off?
1: It could suggest that. I should point out that so far in federal special elections, those for Congress and the Senate, Democrats have been outperforming the partisan baseline based upon the last two presidential elections by about 17 percentage points. Uh, That's significantly better than, say, a six or seven point lead on the generic congressional ballot, as is currently the case. Now, the question is, do those special elections mean more than the uh, generic congressional ballot? Maybe, although the sample size is quite small on that. I should point out that in 2006, Democrats were outperforming the baseline by about 15 percentage points, and they only ended up winning the national House vote by eight. So just because Democrats are running away in the special elections doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to run away with the House in the fall, though it's certainly not a bad thing for Democrats. And the two factors of how Democrats do in the fall and how they do in special congressional elections, they're certainly correlated.
0: Other than the election you just mentioned, are there there other elections where we've seen a large gap between special election performance and election results in November?
1: Uh, The only other one where there was really that wide of one would be, say, in 2002, when essentially there was a tie in the uh, special congressional elections. That is, no party really outperformed their baseline, and then Republicans went on to win the House Popular Vote by five points. Uh, But, of course, that was the year of 9-11 or the cycle of 9-11, so that was a little odd. And I should also point out that the sample size we're dealing with here only dates back to 1994. I believe that's only six midterm cycles. So it's not exactly a large sample size. So
0: why does the data only go back to 1994?
1: uh, There are a number of reasons why, not the least of which is that in order to calculate two presidential results, that type of data is not readily available. Uh, It's a a matter of a database problem more than anything else. Uh, I should point out that we'll get get
0: working on it. Get working, yeah, get, on
1: get, it. Wor- get working on it. You know, I've been working. I've been. My head has been in spreadsheets, and there's a mutual friend of ours who can certainly tell you that I've gotten very little sleep with my head in spreadsheets. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying, trying, Isaac. But you know, at the end of the day, I do need to see my mother for dinner once in a while. Otherwise, she complains like the good Jewish mother she is.
0: Uh, okay. Again, we're we're getting off track, but uh, I want to ask you. So, I mentioned the thing that Democrats were excited about. The things that re- the thing that Republicans have been more excited about lately is the fact that President Trump's approval rating has ticked up a few points. I would say since around the end of last year, he's had a pretty good four or five months. His approval rating now, I think, is about forty-two percent or so, would be the average. But before I ask, I mean, do you have some sense of of why his approval rating is ticked up, or or a theory?
1: I have a few theories, not the least of which is that they're not talking too much about taxes anymore and they're not talking too much about health care. What's in the news, for instance, today is Roseanne, Roseanne, Roseanne. And, you know, the fact is that most people expect Donald Trump to be talking about Roseanne. Um, That's not a big surprise to his supporters when he went after health care. I think that went against his popular screen. So the fact that we're on these more ridiculous issues of the day, I think that has certainly helped Donald Trump.
0: The idea being that that's kind of baked into the cake with his popularity. and that... Yeah,
1: exactly. That it's baked into the cake. People expect Trump to go on Twitter and do things that most presidents wouldn't do. What they didn't perhaps necessarily expect was that he was going to go in and be an arch conservative when it came to dealing with the health care issue. And I think that surprised a lot of people. And why his approval
0: ratings dropped during that debate? Does this suggest anything to you about what Democrats midterm messaging should be?
1: Yeah, I mean, they should. I mean, they if they want to, if health care is something that certainly seems to work, that is a big driving issue for Democrats Again, to get into the to the polls, that doesn't necessarily mean they should be arguing, say, for a Medicare for all package, but it would say, hey, these guys tried to mess and take your health care away. And it would also suggest if you look at the Pennsylvania 18 special election, when the Republicans were talking about the tax cuts there, it simply did not work. It didn't work. So going after Republicans on tax cuts, in my opinion, is also pretty good idea.
0: So as we say, Trump's approval rating is ticking up a little bit. And how much data do we have on a president's approval rating versus his party's performance in their first midterm election two years after they were elected?
1: Well, we got a lot of data on that. You know, you're worried about spreadsheets, but we got a lot of data on presidential approval ratings. And we do know that how a president's How many people approve of the president and how his party does in the midterm election is certainly correlated. Now, again, I hate to say it, but there's a wide margin of error around that. But generally speaking, a president who has an approval rating in the low 40s, his party would be dead meat in a midterm election. Dead meat. Now, there are a number of reasons to perhaps why President Trump's Republican Party won't be dead meat. But historically speaking, they'd be dead meat with an approval rating with the president having in the low
0: 40s. And so what may save them are the factors you were talking about earlier? Uh, Well,
1: there are a number of factors. The ones I was talking about earlier, also the fact that um, President Trump and Republicans increasingly so, there's been an increasing divergence between how many, what percentage of all Americans approve of the job the president is doing and what percentage of registered voters or likely voters do. And we've seen that in a number of polls this year where Trump's approval rating among, say, adults is 41-42, but in that same poll, his approval rating among registered voters is closer to 44-45. Now, you know, 44-45 still isn't great for a president, but if you could imagine the president's approval rating, say, ticking up an extra point point or two. Then all of a sudden, Trump's approval rating among registered voters is in the mid to high 40s. And that in itself is not emblematic of a wave of election. So that's one thing I would certainly be keeping my eye on, as well as the fact is, hey, there's a margin of error around these estimates. So it's not a perfect one to one ratio.
0: Not being an expert on these matters, uh, as you are, um, when you said that there's been an increasing split in registered voters or likely voters as we get closer to an election and and the sort of all adults, um, it would seem to me, just thinking off the top of my head, that as the Republican Party becomes increasingly winning over, let's say, um, white working class um, Americans with less high education levels and losing suburban voters as they began to do to Hillary Clinton, that in fact that that would play to Democrats' favor in terms of winning registered voters versus all adults. But apparently that's not the case. Why is that?
1: Well, there's certainly that factor that's working in the Democrats' favor, but there's also the other factor working in the Republicans' favor, which is Republican support is increasingly subjugated amongst the oldest of Americans, and they tend to turn on in much higher numbers than the youngest Americans who are the most likely, most likely to dislike Donald Trump. And there's also the fact that Republicans are increasingly relying on white voters versus the overall population, and white voters tend to turn out in larger numbers than non-white voters do. So there are are a couple of moving parts there, but most of the moving parts are going in the Republicans' direction, at least in this day and age.
0: When you look at Trump, he's been in office almost 18 months now. Just to sort of take a step back and look at his approval rating, how steady is it compared to most presidents in their first 18 months, would you say?
1: It's certainly as steady as any prior president. Um, there's, you know, there's not many who have been more steady than him. There have been a few, you know, Richard Nixon was fairly steady over his first, uh, first say, two years. And then obviously Nixon went up and then went way down, you know, so on, and so forth, Watergate being the story there. But it is certainly the case that Donald Trump's support has been within a relatively narrow band. The question ultimately being, is there anything that's going to jolt it from that narrow band? Uh, that, I think, is a wait and see.
0: It would seem to me just sort of thinking off the top of my head that we would assume that Trump's approval would be more constant than other presidents. As weird as that sounds, just because of sort of the increase in partisanship in the country and the fact that it seems like there are fewer and fewer persuadable voters. And, you know, when you just look at some of these poll numbers, I mean, I know Trump has been lower than he is now, but when you look at some of these poll numbers – the number of sort of steady republicans who will support him is fairly high and 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 the fact the number of people who strongly disapprove of him which has been sort of close to 50 or over 50 a couple months ago suggests that his approval rating is not going to get that high either as well as not getting that low
1: uh, maybe, although it should be pointed out that his strong disapproves have tended to recede back into the low 40s from being in those high 40s to low 50s, depending on what poll you look at. So I'm not even sure that those people aren't ultimately gettable, at least a little bit of them. Certainly, most of them will continue to dislike the president. And yeah, polarization certainly has had the effect of, I think, making a appro- president's approval ratings more steady. I mean, Obama's approval rating, once you got past year one, was pretty steady. But the thing that I would keep an eye out on. And I think the ultimate question here is what happens with the state of the economy. Right now, it's been pretty gosh darn good and people see it as pretty gosh darn good. If the economy goes south, that I think is the the factor that could ultimately open up the floor and Trump could fall through it. However, if the economy stays pretty good and Trump keeps his mouth shut, I wouldn't be surprised if his approval rating continues to tick up, say, into the mid 40s and then ultimately the upper 40s but uh you know i try to predict the future but i can't predict the state of the economy in 6 months let alone let alone the state of the economy um of my own wallet so we'll see
0: well you just got a new job so i hope i hope things are looking up um let me ask you we've we're now we're now a couple years out almost from the last election polling and pollsters were criticized a lot in 2016 for supposedly not getting the result right when you look back at the polls in november of 2016 Broadly speaking, is there one or two things that you think were done incorrectly by pollsters, and do you see those mistakes being fixed, you know, 18 months later?
1: I I think that there were two things that I would keep an eye out on. Number one is to make sure that pollsters, uh, when they can, wait to... Education. Uh, There were too many white college graduates in the polls as compared to white non-college graduates. And although, you know, perhaps once upon a time, education levels weren't the most predictive of a vote. Now it certainly is predictive, especially among white voters. So hopefully we'll be seeing more pollsters adjust for that factor going into 2018, because obviously white non-college voters will be much more supportive of the president than white college voters. And then I would say the second thing, which perhaps seems simple enough, is that on on the state level, the pollsters just need to pull to the end. Uh, There were a number of states where pollsters tended to pull out because perhaps they thought that Donald Trump was cooked in that state and perhaps he wasn't as cooked as some pollsters thought. So hopefully we'll end up in a situation here where pollsters are polling to the end because you're never quite sure when there might be a late surge by one of the candidates in any one of these races. Most of them, there probably won't be that late surge, but we won't know that unless we pull to the end of the campaign.
0: Speaking of states, there are a number of competitive Senate seats. Are there three states that you're keeping an eye on, three races, three Senate races that you find particularly interesting? Or maybe I should just say, what are the three most interesting Senate races in your mind?
1: Well, I mean, to me, the most fascinating race, to be honest, is probably Tennessee. I mean, this is a state that Donald Trump won by over 25 percentage points or right in there about. Uh, It's a state that hasn't voted for a Democratic presidential nominee since 1996, hasn't voted for a Democratic Senate candidate since, I think, the early 90s. And Phil Bredesen, who's the former governor of that state, has generally been polling ahead of the likely Republican nominee, Marsha Blackburn. And if Democrats can win there, they need a net gain of two in order to pick up control of the Senate. If they can win there and then hold on and say win in Nevada and in Arizona, well, then all of a sudden you got a net gain of three. And that means you could afford to lose one of the many states which have Democratic senators right now, um but where Donald Trump won in 2016. So Tennessee has won. Uh, Two, I'd say, is Indiana. Joe Donnelly running in that state. Not a lot of polling there. Uh, Donnelly won in 2012 because, Richard, among other reasons, Richard Murdoch, the Republican nominee, was flawed. He was one of the candidates who made an allusion to rape um, on the 2012 campaign trail, Republican Senate candidates, that is. And then the third contest where I think I probably keep an eye out on, just because I'm always fascinated by the state of Florida, uh, is the state of Florida, given that the incumbent Bill Nelson, who's been in the Senate for one his first term in 2000 is facing off against Rick Scott, who is the current uh, Republican governor of that state. And Rick Scott is going to spend so much freaking money. And the question ultimately is, is can he spend enough money to win that race because he's going to vastly outspend Nelson? And if he does, if Republicans are able to win in Florida, that probably closes off the path for a Democratic majority. But if Nelson holds off there, perhaps it means that money isn't everything.
0: Because Democrats are already vulnerable, as you were saying, in Indiana, they're definitely vulnerable in Missouri. Would there be a third really vulnerable?
1: North Dakota. I, I think that Indiana, Missouri and North Dakota are probably the three that uh, I would say Democrats are most vulnerable in. Uh, there's a case to be made for West Virginia where Joe Manchin is running and Donald Trump won there in 2016 by over 40 points. But there have been some polls recently to suggest that Manchin, in fact, at this point has a lead in the high single digits to low double digits. But I think that. Any of those states are states where Republicans have a real shot at picking up uh, a Democratic seat. But, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait and see and see whether or not how much that president, that those feelings towards the president translate into uh, Senate vote choices in 2018.
0: You mentioned Florida very quickly. How is the state of Florida changing politically? It seems like there are all these different cross currents. You know, the state's obviously very old at the same time. Uh, we had all these um, people from Puerto Rico who I think a couple hundred thousand who moved to the state after the hurricane. What's your view of Florida as kind of a swing state today?
1: I, I think it's the same that it's been for the last 20 years and that is a, it is a swing state that leans slightly more Republican than Democratic and the large reason for that is that old people – tend to turn out and vote in much larger numbers than young people tend to turn out and vote. So even if the young population, specifically young Cubans and young Hispanics of uh, from different countries uh, may be leaning more Democratic than they did in past years, the fact is that you're still getting a lot of senior citizens coming into that state. And for now, those senior citizens lean Republican. That doesn't mean they always will remember. It was nearly 20 years ago when Al Gore basically put his entire campaign in Florida and said, we're going to win on the backs of senior citizens who lean Democratic in that year. Uh, So we'll see what happens in the future. But for right now, because all voters lean Republican, it gives Florida that slight tilt to the right.
0: Tell us before you go uh, how a a political analyst and uh, data junkie like yourself uh, spends an average workday.
1: Uh, let's see last not, yesterday I was uh, basically on the census website scraping data about uh, citizen voting age population uh, I was also looking at FEC returns uh, reports from 2006 from 2008 onward they're much more you're able to get them a lot more easily they changed the system over so I was basically going uh, race by race candidate by candidate to make sure I had the correct filings for each one and then in the evening I think I was talking with a fellow number analysts that we mutually know uh, via email and via text, just saying, uh, this is what we're seeing. Let's see if we can get this spreadsheet together. I'll give you this spreadsheet if you give me your spreadsheet. And it's just a love affair.
0: Harry Enton is a senior writer and analyst at CNN, and uh, his mother is very proud of him for coming on this uh, this giant hit podcast. So, uh, Harry, uh, thank you for being here.
1: Uh, Shalom.
0: And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs, thanks to Shasha Leonard at Slate Studios in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest, you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's ASK at Slate.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at IChotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening.